You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Do you often check your email before something else that you need to do? How often do you lose sleep due to late night logins? Do you often find yourself saying, just a few more minutes when online? Perhaps you suffer from internet addiction or not. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is the president of the Association for Addiction Professionals, Dr. Sharon Freeman. She also maintains an active clinical practice as executive director of the Center for Brief Therapy in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we have a lot to learn from you today. So, Dr. Freeman, is there really a condition known as Internet addiction? There's no doubt that Internet activity can be very rewarding. And as humans, we do tend to repeat activity that's rewarding. And activities in our society are often repeated to excess if we find pleasure in them. So isn't that addiction? Well, not necessarily. I think that we have learned to call things that we enjoy addictions if we have excesses. For example, I'm a NASCAR fan, so if I watch every NASCAR race, does that make me a NASCAR addict or a NASCAR fanatic? So a fanatic is not an addict. No, a fanatic would be somebody who just enjoys something maybe to excess, an addict has a dependency upon something that chemically triggers the neurolimbic area of the brain, the mesolimbic area of the brain. And that actually is a neuroreceptive area that requires chemicals to change, particularly dopamine, the GABA systems. And these neuro areas of the brain, the dopaminergic neurons, the ventral tegmental area specifically is very important. You're not going to get those changes by watching, for me, by watching NASCAR. Not to the excess or the level you get with chemicals introduced into the brain. And that is the key. And as you water this down with, with calling people internet addicts, the difference between a chemical addiction And behaviors of excess is that the chemical addictions can kill you. That is significant. A chemical addiction is life-threatening to the physical body of the individual who's afflicted with those illnesses. They experience tolerance to the chemical, withdrawal, loss of control over the use, a persistent desire to discontinue the use. They want to stop, but they can't. There's a great deal of time spent using, and that equates in research to a minimum of 10 hours per day. Chemical addictions are life-threatening to the physical body of the individual who's afflicted with those illnesses. In other words, these individuals experience a, a physical change in the brain. The brain adapts to the chronic presence of that chemical. They have tolerance to that chemical. Their body experiences withdrawal for most of these chemicals. They have a loss of control over their use. They have a persistent desire to discontinue use. There's a great deal of time spent using. And in research, we use 10 hours, a minimum of 10 hours a day spent time in using, obtaining, and recovering from the substance. But certainly there are Internet people who are on a computer more than 10 hours a day. They want to stop, but they can't. There's even something in the literature about Internet withdrawal. 
So wouldn't that meet criteria? Well, the interesting thing about the Internet withdrawal criteria that's been developed is that Internet withdrawal appears to look like what we used to call a tantrum. It basically is a behavioral response to someone being frustrated, to someone who has been denied a toy. In essence, that is an impulse control frustration tolerance disorder or frustration tolerance behavioral pattern. So this is not addiction. This is gratification. (laughs) These are gratification problems. And in addiction, when our true addiction and a true chemical dependency, when someone continues to use a, a chemical to excess, they can overdose and and potentially die. You've never seen somebody die from internet overdose. You don't see somebody have physical withdrawal where their body potentially could have true seizures, a seizure where they lay on the floor and kick their feet and yell and cry, that's not a seizure. This is a tantrum. I think that we are misusing legal criteria for medical criteria in many of these cases. But to play devil's advocate for a moment, you could say the same thing about marijuana addicts, right? That you're not going to die from smoking pot. You're not going to get into a withdrawal syndrome that's life-threatening. With marijuana, however, you can track the changes physiologically in the brain. And you do have specific behavioral manifestations of chronic marijuana use that include certain outcomes such as failure to mature and certain physical changes such as breast development. And in males specifically, they have decreased testosterone levels. I just saw a gentleman today who had significantly decreased testosterone levels that resulted in him being treated by his family practitioner with Viagra for a period of time. He developed depression, he had impotence, and he was less than 22 years old. He was sent to me for treatment of his depression. I did a drug screen and discovered that he was heavily overusing marijuana, discontinued the marijuana, his testosterone levels increased, and his depression abated. So this is not something that you get with Internet use. You don't get reduced volume in someone's testes and demonstrable changes physiologically. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is cognitive therapist Dr. Sharon Freeman. Dr. Freeman, it sounds like to me that you're really kind of focusing on the chemical in order to be abusive or or have a dependency problem. So what would that mean for things like sexual addiction? Well, in the DSM-4TR, which is the diagnostic manual for diagnosis of these disorders, first of all, there is no medical term addiction. That is a societal term. In the medical diagnostic world. The terms are substance abuse or substance dependence. For sexual disorders, you would have to use a diagnosis of paraphilia or pedophilia or a voyeurism. So there is no term sexual addiction. It does not exist. What about food addiction? That would be eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa, binge eating disorders, or other types of eating disorders. Again, there is no food addiction or food dependence disorders that exist 
And if you look at brain scans of individuals who have chemical addictive diseases as opposed to overeating, you do see the limbic centers light up. However, they don't light up as brightly. They are not stimulated to the degree that the chemicals stimulate them. They do light up, but not anywhere near as brightly as with the chemicals. Pathological gambling is another area where individuals like to use the term addiction. However, again, in uh, professional literature and also as far as diagnostically, there is no term or there is no diagnosis gambling addiction. There is pathological gambling disorder, but that is an impulse control disorder. I think that as a profession, we need to start taking a look at what terms we're using and start to develop criteria for these disorders that actually fit what is going on with the brain, with the body, and many of them are pathological impulse control disorders or pathological behavior disorders as opposed to addictive diseases because in the dependence criteria, you really are looking at a physiological medical disorder. You're not looking at behavioral pathological compulsive behavioral disorders, and you need to treat those differently than you do the medical physiologic disorders. And the chemical dependencies have been treated as medical disorders, and they respond to medications and medical treatments. So it makes sense that you treat them as medical disorders. Problematic internet use. How's that? How do you treat them? Do you not treat them like an addict? What's the best way to go about getting these folks better? What we used to treat many of the pathological behavior disorders, what I have been calling a compulsive pathological behavior disorder, well, I'm a cognitive behavior therapist, so I treat them with a course of impulse control behavior therapy and help them to develop what they should have been developing as they have been growing up or as these disorders have developed, which is frustration tolerance and impulse control. An example that I give them is they have impulses that they know they're able to control. They, for example, have a full bladder, and they feel like, They have to go immediately, but they might be in a public place, like at the mall, shopping. This is something anyone can relate to. I'm at the mall, I'm shopping, my bladder is really full, where's the next bathroom? Well, they're not going to just stop and urinate in the middle of the mall. (laughs) They have the ability to control that impulse until they're in an appropriate place. So using this understanding that they do have the skill, we then expand upon the skill and transfer it to another area where they need to demonstrate the ability to control impulses. It's unfortunate, but often our children are being taught that they don't have to learn frustration control, that we we are living in a society of immediate gratification. Everything from food to banking to whatever you need, you do a drive-through. We don't have to get out of our cars. We come home and Everything is instant. Our computers now allow us to shop. So given that, why should we not expect instant gratification for as many things as we'd like? So the treatment revolves around that, not necessarily using medications? Sometimes it's helpful to use medications if someone has an underlying difficulty with impulse, a true impulse control disorder. 
So we might use an SSRI or we might use Depakote or gabapentin, and sometimes that does help somebody who has, for example, in addition to this type of a disorder, the Internet addiction, they may have a global impulse control problem, and that sometimes that manifests in a history at school. For example, growing up, they might have been the bully. Maybe they were one of the kids who tended to fight easily, or they have irritability or, or an anger problem. They're quick on the trigger. In that case, we would use some medication for an individual like that. But for the most part, some behavior training is one of the things that works very well. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Sharon Freeman. We've been discussing Internet Impulse Control Disorder. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.